Well, Paul is in a Roman prison. Chains dangle from his wrists as he writes of his freedom in Christ. He's outfitted in prison stripes as he pins about the righteousness that he wears. A string of Roman numerals are stitched across his shirt while he records the innumerable blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. You see, rather than see himself in prison, Paul chooses to see himself in Christ. And this is the choice you and I make every single day. Do we get lost in our physical surroundings? Or do we stay focused on our spiritual blessings? In your heart of hearts, where do you abide? Are you in pain? Or are you in Christ? Are you in hock? Or are you in Christ? Are you in somebody's hot seat? Or are you in Christ? Are you in fear? Are you in Christ? Well, chapter 3 begins, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Notice, Paul is in Christ. He belongs to Jesus. You know, he could have said, Paul, the prisoner of Rome, or the prisoner of Caesar, or the prisoner of the Jews. But no, he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Understand, Christians are never a victim of circumstance. God is sovereign. That means that nothing can get to me, but that it doesn't first pass through him. This is why we can't necessarily interpret disappointment as a derailment of God's plan. Hey, Paul belonged to Jesus. Here he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ. And why was Paul in prison? Well, he tells us, for you Gentiles. Despite Jewish prejudice, despite their legalism, Paul had stood up for pig-eating, bacon-loving Gentiles like you and me. How about that? Paul preached grace for every race. God isn't just for the well-bred, the Jew. Righteousness is apart from the law. It's available to the Gentiles. Paul put God and all his blessings within the reach of the outcast. Today, every time I savor a pork barbecue sandwich, and I do it often, I realize that I owe Paul a debt of gratitude. Now, Paul had spent two years in Ephesus. This is why it's funny to me that here in verse 2, he asks if they've heard of his ministry. He says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Of course they'd heard. Perhaps Paul is really asking them, do you really understand the implications of God's grace? And if he were writing to us tonight, I think he would ask, do we? You know, when you think of a dispensation of grace... Think of a distributorship, or maybe even a franchise. You see, the Jews knew of God's grace, so God sent Paul to distribute salvation to a different market, to the Gentiles. Understand, God is an entrepreneur. He's not afraid of branching out and opening up new channels of distribution for His amazing grace. And He wants us to move out into different segments of the market. Into every age, in every race, in every language, in every culture. And I guess when it comes to marketing and distribution, no business is better at it than McDonald's. Did you know that the busiest McDonald's now, the busiest McDonald's restaurant, sits a few blocks away from the Kremlin in Moscow? At one time, a new McDonald's opened up somewhere in the world every four hours. 
Today, there are over 31,000 McDonald's stores in 119 countries. And as Christians, we should be as effective distributing the gospel as McDonald's is getting out Big Macs. Hey, perhaps your office has never had a strong witness for Jesus. Maybe the same could be said for your tennis team, or for your neighborhood, or for your hunting club. And God has given you the distribution rights in that new market. So get busy. It's been said, there's bread enough, or there's enough bread of life to supply the whole world, but are there enough volunteers to distribute it? That's the question he's asking us tonight. Well, Paul continues talking about his dispensation of grace. How that by revelation, he, or Christ, made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. Now notice here, Paul refers to the gospel of God's grace as a mystery. Now whenever we hear the word mystery, we think of an Agatha Christie novel, or maybe a Sherlock Holmes movie. We think of a suspense-filled, smoking-gun, whodunit thriller. But that's not what Paul means when he uses this term mystery. A biblical mystery is simply a truth that's known only to God. You could call it a sacred secret. And the great mystery in the Old Testament was how God would save the Gentiles. Now, there were Old Testament prophecies that predicted their conversion. But it remained unclear to everyone but God as to exactly how that would happen. The privilege of explaining the mystery was finally given to Paul. God revealed to Paul that through Christ, he would bring together both Jew and Gentile as one new group, as the church. When Paul first preached the gospel of Jesus, he was answering age-old questions. You know, I'm afraid that one of the reasons we often take the gospel and God's grace for granted is that we no longer see it as a mystery. When we first heard it, when we first grasped its implications, it was an unexpected discovery. It overwhelmed our hearts. I mean, we were overflooded by the lavishness of God's generosity. We were surprised by a love we didn't deserve. But lose the wonder and the amazement, and the serendipity of it all. And what was once an unexpected discovery soon becomes a worn-out doctrine. If the gospel has gotten boring to you, it's time to pick it up again. For once a mystery, always a mystery. Take, for example, oh, maybe a 15-year marriage. How about that? A 15-year marriage. By now, your relationship is familiar territory. You've been married for 15 years. And thus, to keep your love fresh, you need to create some mystique in the marriage. From time to time, you should approach the relationship from a different angle. Maybe check into a hotel one night. Ladies, buy some new lingerie. Dine in a new restaurant somewhere other than that McDonald's you've been going to. 
Realize your spouse is an ever-changing person. There are dimensions to their personality that are yet to be discovered. There's new wrinkles yet to be explored, literally. Here's my point. The way to beat boredom in a marriage is by reintroducing into the relationship some mystery. And the same is true in our relationship with God. I've heard it said, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And that's so true, especially with the Bible. There's always more to this book than you've realized. So forget the fact that you've read the Bible all your life. Pick it up afresh one day. Look for something new. Read it as if you're reading it for the first time. Hey, there is something new there. Focus on reading the passage like you've never read it before and let God surprise you. Let God add some mystery to your relationship with Him. Well, Paul is speaking of the gospel, verse 7. He says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. I mean, for Paul, sharing the gospel wasn't a duty. It was an honor he didn't deserve. The Apostle Paul was probably Christianity's greatest minister. But notice he considered himself less than the least of the saints. That's some humility. Before he dispensed grace, he received grace. He understood grace. He personally partook of God's grace. And now God has called him to share the secrets. For me, there's only one thing more fun than keeping a secret. And that's sharing that secret with someone else. In fact, I'm the person in my family most prone to blowing a secret. So they really don't tell me too many secrets these days. Well, Paul had the honor of traveling all over the world and letting the cat out of the bag. He had the joy of telling the mystery, of sharing the secret, of telling the Gentiles of God's grace and his love for them. Paul was having a ball. And we can join that fun. Notice how he describes his ministry. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Notice he refers to our spiritual blessings, the riches of Christ, as unsearchable. Or literally untraceable. It's not mankind who finds God. It's God who reveals himself to us. Left on our own. We couldn't trace it. We, we couldn't figure it out. We could never get to God. God is the one who has initiated the communication. Left to ourselves, without God's word, we'd be in the dark. This is why Paul calls the riches of Christ the unsearchable riches of Christ. They're received by us through revelation, not through investigation. Verse 9, it was Paul's privilege to preach and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. In other words, both us and the angels behold God's manifold wisdom, or literally His multifaceted wisdom, by looking at God's church. The church is the prism through which the world can witness the wonders of God's grace and God's wisdom. 
He says that even the angels, the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places, they learn what God is up to in the world by looking at us, the church. How Jesus forgives, how he saves, how he blesses, how he unites is a lesson to the angels. It blows their minds whenever they see a healthy church. Verse 11, and according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Now here's another incredible blessing in Christ that we should never neglect. We have bold and confident access to God through Jesus Christ. Hey, this was a blessing that the Old Testament saints knew nothing about. No one. But the high priest, and him only once a year, and with great fear and trepidation, was he allowed into God's presence. But did you know that in Christ, you can run into God's living room anytime you want? You can come to the throne of grace with boldness. Spiritually, we can spend all our time seated in heavenly places in Christ. We have access to God through Christ Jesus. And because of that access, Paul intends to take advantage of it. Are you taking advantage of the access you have in Christ? Are you praying? Are you seeking the Lord? Well, Paul has a prayer. He's going to pray for these Ephesians. He says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Paul doesn't want his imprisonment to discourage these Ephesians. And that's why he's praying for them. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And here's Paul's second prayer for the Ephesians. Remember, chapter 1 ended with a prayer. Now we have his second prayer here in chapter 3. And notice his first request for the Ephesians. Is to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Notice Paul doesn't pray for the outer man but for the inner man. How much of our prayers are focused on the circumstances that our friends are dealing with, our family's dealing with? When we pray for a friend, we usually focus on the outer man. Instead, we need to direct our prayers toward their spiritual health, toward the inner man. The outer man, no matter how hard you pray, is destined to wither and die one day. There is no such thing as the fountain of youth. But the inner man is like a rechargeable battery. Paul says, though my outward man is perishing, my inward man is being renewed day by day. I hope when you pray for me, I hope you pray for the inner man, for the spirit of Sandy Adams. This is what needs to be plugged in every day. This is what needs to be recharged. Hey, did you know that spiritually we can plug into God? We can recharge our batteries? We can be re-strengthened? That's what Paul prays. To be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. And then he adds, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul wants to allow Jesus to dwell or literally make himself at home in their hearts. Now Jesus is king. He's the king of the jungle. We've been learning that on Sunday mornings. Thus, wherever he moves, Jesus takes over. When Jesus moves into your heart, he starts to redecorate. He removes some of those stinky old fixtures that you you had laying around. He starts installing new stuff and new attitudes. Wherever Jesus dwells, he's king of the castle. And Paul prays that the Ephesians will give the Lord full control of their hearts. 
that they'll trust Him enough to make the changes that He deems best in their lives. That Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. And then verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul asks God to enlarge their spiritual capacity and enable them to grasp His love on an experiential basis. He wants them to know the full volume of His love for them. Have you ever prayed that prayer for someone? Lord, that You'd fill them with all the fullness of the knowledge of You. Once there was a little boy, he fell into a vat of sweet-tasting molasses. And he prayed, Lord, make my capacity equal to my opportunity. God's love is an ocean. And you can take all you want. The only limitation is the size of your bucket. May we all be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's have a big faith. Paul closes his prayer with a praise. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Imagine. God not only able to meet every need you bring to him, but he is able to do above all that you could ask or think. In other words, his grace is always greater than your need. It is. God is never limited. God will never come up short. Never forget, God can do exceedingly abundantly if we just ask. Well, Paul begins chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. And again, Paul mentions his incarceration. See, Paul was an example to all believers. Followers of Jesus are promised two things. Blessings in Christ and trouble in this world. That's what you've been promised too. You know, I've been to that little cave that Paul occupied in the heart of Rome. I've been there. The Marmontine prison. It's a small subterranean holding cell. And I envision Paul there. He's pacing back and forth, back and forth. Paul is worried. But not about his imprisonment. It's not where he walks that concerns him. It's how he walks. And thus Paul writes to the Ephesians, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now here's a good outline for the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 teach us all that we are and all that we have in Christ Jesus. That we are now seated in Christ. Chapters 4 through 5 teach us how to walk. Once you learn to sit up, then you can learn to walk. How to walk, how to live out our lives in light of the blessings that we've received. And then chapter 6 is going to teach us how to stand, how to stand against the wiles and the schemes of the devil, how to do battle. So here's Christianity in a nutshell. Sit, walk, stand. That's the book of Ephesians. In Christ, you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. You and I have become somebody in Christ Jesus, but now we need to live like it. We need to walk worthy of our calling. 
You see, membership in God's family not only has amazing privileges, but it also has important responsibilities. Membership has privileges, but membership also has responsibility. As a pint-sized princess growing up in Buckingham Palace, little Victoria, she was sheltered from the fact that she was next in line to be England's monarch. Her handlers didn't want to spoil this future queen, so they didn't tell her. But one day, Victoria, she was studying the genealogical records of the royal family, and she noticed that she was next in line to the throne. Initially, it caused Victoria to weep. But after gaining her composure, a weightiness came over her. She looked up at her tutor and she said simply, Then I must be good. I mean, this is the reaction Paul hopes hits you. In Christ, you have this high calling. I mean, president, premier, prime minister pales in comparison to your calling. You're a Christian. In light of that high calling, we too must be good. We need to walk worthy of the calling we've received in Christ. And the first observation that Paul makes about our high calling is that it requires a lowly walk. In verse 2, Paul says that we should walk with all lowliness or in humility. You know, it's been said, there are no limits to how much can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. And the same is true in the church. Let's all walk in humility and also gentleness. Let's be gentle one toward, toward the other. You know, when you look around at the people in your life, even at the people in this room, I hope in your mind you imagine them with stickers stuck all over them that read, Fragile, handle with care. This is how we should treat each other. We need to be sensitive and tender toward one another. We need to walk in gentleness. And then we also should walk with long-suffering or with patience. We should be patient toward one another. Aren't you always appreciative when God's patient towards you? How about you being patient towards others? And here's another way to walk, bearing with one another in love. I need to put up with the quirks and the idiosyncrasies of other people. Now, did you know not everyone is as normal as you are? Did you know that? That's true. It's been said, Christian discipleship is teaching the intolerant to tolerate the intolerable. Hey, since people get down, and they do, let's walk lowly. So we can lift them up. Since people are fragile, let's walk in gentleness. Since people take time, let's be patient. And since everyone is just a little bit weird, let's bear with one another in love. This is how we should walk. Verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now realize the unity of the Spirit is a gift from God. We enjoy this spiritual affinity. I mean, we're all different stripes and types, but there's this bond that we all enjoy. The same nature, the same spiritual DNA exists in, within all true believers. But understand what the unity of the Spirit is not. It's not the unity of faith. For we're not all going to agree on every detail of doctrine. Neither is it unity of format. For we all enjoy different styles of music, different worship expressions. It's not even unity of friendship. 
Because we can be united in spirit and not necessarily be close friends. No, the spirit's unity doesn't abolish our differences. Rather, it creates a commonality greater than our differences. We can't manufacture this unity. It is the Holy Spirit's work in the church. But once we receive it, we can endeavor to keep it. This word endeavor, it means to aggressively and actively do whatever it takes to preserve our unity. Is this your attitude toward your relationships within the church? Should be. The Spirit creates this bond of peace between us. But it will get broken if it's not protected. Misunderstandings, hurt feelings, jealousies, these are inevitable. And these are the things that threaten the unity of the Spirit. This is why we have to endeavor to stay united, to stay together. It has to be a priority for us all. A visitor to an insane asylum, he was astonished to see only three guards in charge of hundreds of dangerous inmates. The visitor asked one of the guards, Aren't you afraid that these people will overpower you guys and escape? He replied, No, lunatics never unite. Remember that. Hey, God has created a wonderful family here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. I mean, when you enter the doors, don't you sense the unity of the Spirit? I do. But it's up to us to walk in lowliness, in gentleness, in patience, in tolerance toward one another. We need to endeavor to keep this unity. And here's several other reasons why we should be concerned about our unity. Notice verse 4. There is one body. There's only one body. The sixth edition of the Handbook of American Denominations lists no less than a thousand different Christian denominations. A thousand. The list includes some really interesting denominations. For example, the two seed in the spirit predestinarian Baptists. Glad I've never met one of those. How about this one? The triumph of the church and kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. Or Christ Church. And this is the one I'm really scared of. The original Church of God Incorporated. Who's arrogant enough to call themselves that? And to think that New Testament believers simply called themselves Christians. Just Christians. That should be enough. Why? Because there's only one body in Christ. And there's only one Spirit. I mean, the same Spirit that dwells in you dwells in me. We have the same spiritual DNA. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. In short, there's only one heaven. I hope you know when we get there, there's not going to be a Baptist section and a Calvary Chapel section and a Methodist section. There's only one heaven. Only one hope of our calling. And there's only one Lord. We all say yes, sir, to the same person. His name is Jesus. Our goal is to please and glorify our Lord. And there's one faith. In other words, there's one true body of belief. Understand, theology isn't arbitrary or ambiguous. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. There's only one faith. And then there's one baptism. You know, when a person comes to Christ, they're baptized into the body of Christ, not just a particular church. 
That's why Christian churches should accept each other's baptisms. I mean, to me, it's arrogant to require a believer to be rebaptized with your baptism. That's spiritual bigotry. There's only one baptism. And finally, verse 6, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Proving that Paul's a southerner, he says, in y'all. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed not only for our orthodoxy, but for our unity. You should understand that. Apparently, our unity was very important to him. He prayed for it that night, then he paid for it the next day. Thus, let us endeavor to keep that unity. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, if we measure out grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, oh my, well, God has held nothing back. Jesus gave it all. Thus, we are flooded with grace. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, here's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. You can go back and read it later. The psalm depicts the Messiah as a conquering general returning home from battle. Behind him now walks his captives, and he is rewarded for his triumphs with special gifts. Now Paul quotes that psalm, but he makes a change. In Paul's quote, Jesus is the victorious general, no doubt about it. He's bringing his captives with him. But rather than receiving gifts, Paul sees him giving gifts. He has triumphed over death. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended to heaven and now he is giving gifts to men. Notice verse 9. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Here Paul gives us Jesus' itinerary between his death and his resurrection. What did he do during those three days? Well, we're told here that first he descended into the lower parts of the earth. He went below the valleys, below the crust, below the mantle, below the core. He went actually lower than that. He went into the underworld, into the spiritual realm. And he went all the way to Hades. While his body lay in the ground, his spirit descended to Hades. Now Luke chapter 16 describes this place called Hades. Hades was like a duplex. If you've ever lived in the duplex, you can decide which is the good side and which is the bad side. But Hades was like a duplex. It was divided into two sides. There was a good side and there was a bad side. And they were separated by a huge gulf. Those who died believing in God's promises, they went to paradise, the good side of Hades. The unbelievers went to the place of torment, the abyss or the place of outer darkness. In the Old Testament, before the work of Christ on the cross, the door to God's presence was closed. The blood sacrifices covered man's sin, but they didn't erase them. Hades served as a holding tank for heaven until Jesus, the 
perfect Lamb of God came and offered the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, sin's permanent solution. Well, as soon as Jesus conquered sin, He descended to Hades. And He gathered up all of those Old Testament believers who had trusted in God's salvation. They became His captives. General Jesus then led those happy captives into the halls of heaven to the praise of the cheering crowd. But instead of receiving gifts, as the psalmist might have implied, Jesus began to give gifts to those still on the earth. And He gives gifts to us today. He gives certain spiritual gifts to members of the body of Christ that help build up the body. Today, when a believer dies, when a believer in Jesus dies, he no longer goes to Hades. Today, we go straight into the presence of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus has busted heaven wide open. He's knocked down the door. He's provided us access to the throne room of God. We go straight into God's presence. And guess what? Jesus is still giving gifts. We find that He's there on the throne and He's giving gifts to people still on earth. He's giving various spiritual gifts to His people. You know, spiritual gifts take different forms. Romans 12 is a great list. There, Paul lists the motivations of the Spirit. You can go and read them. 1 Corinthians 12 lists some spiritual gifts. There, he lists the manifestations of the Spirit. But here in Ephesians 4 verse 11, Paul lists the ministries of the Spirit. For Jesus gives certain supernatural callings or offices to people within the church. We're told, He Himself gave some to be apostles. You know, the original twelve had a unique calling as apostles. But there were other apostles in the New Testament. I like to say the original 12 were big A apostles, but then there were some little A apostles too. The word apostle means sent out one. I believe that a missionary who crosses culture with the gospel could be called an apostle. An apostle is someone who breaks new ground and plants new churches where there were none. He also gives to some prophets. These are God's messengers to the church, men and women, prophets and prophetesses. Through prophets, God speaks special instruction in special times to the church. Paul also mentions some evangelists. This is the person who can effectively lead others to Jesus. This is a person who's gifted in this area. They love the cold call. They can approach a stranger. Hey, we're all called to be witnesses, but some people are in addition evangelists. And then some pastors and teachers. This word pastor is Latin for shepherd. Which reminds me of the new pastor. He was being introduced at the church picnic by one of the elders. The elder got up and said, here he is, the new hog caller of the church. He thought he was being funny. Everybody laughed until the pastor got up. He turned to the elder and he said, Well, I'm usually referred to as the shepherd of the sheep, but you know your people better than I do. The pastor and the church weren't off to a great start, were they? And yet a pastor is a spiritual shepherd. Both a pastor and a shepherd, they nurture their flock. Shepherds retrieve strays. And they mend bruises and they protect from wild animals and they find suitable pasture for their flock. 
And a pastor does all these things for his church. A shepherd's most important job is to feed the flock. Which means a pastor must also be a gifted teacher. And that's why pastors and teachers go hand in hand. Paul Paul gives them as one gift to the church. And notice the ultimate purpose of these gifts and the church in general is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is why the church exists. For the equipping of the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry. You know, most churches, they're divided into two groups of people. There's the laity and there's the ministers. The laymen, they just lay around. While the ministers, they do all the ministering. And that's not the way it should be. That's not God's design. God wants every member a minister. The pastor's job isn't to do all the witnessing and visiting and counseling. My job is to equip you so that you can do the ministering, so that you can do the witnessing and the visiting and the counseling. I teach you God's word week in and week out so you'll have the knowledge and the insight to help others who are hurting and who are in need. I grew up in a church where every week the pastor preached a salvation message. The problem was that 95 to, oh, probably 99% of the congregation was already saved. He ended up speaking to the 3 to 5% while ignoring the vast majority of folks who were there every week. And as a result, no one grew. The believers didn't grow in their faith. They weren't equipped. No one became bolder or stronger or more equipped to impact people for Jesus. But what if a pastor feeds his flock the meat of God's Word and builds up their faith? Then eventually, rather than that one person preaching on Sundays at church, you end up with hundreds of people preaching the gospel throughout the week in hundreds of different locations. That's a better plan. You know, the most important thing I've learned from Pastor Chuck over the years is the simple truth that healthy sheep reproduce. If a pastor feeds the flock, that flock will grow. It'll grow naturally. And how do you feed the flock? You keep preaching. You keep teaching God's Word. It's the Word of God that changes lives. And change lives become witnesses. And witnesses bring other people to Christ. And the chain reaction goes on and on and on. And so the pastor's job is to equip the saints. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice how Paul phrases this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now God manufactures the unity of the Spirit. But we must move toward the unity of the faith. And realize, when it comes to the unity of the faith, I'm not moving towards you. Nor are you moving toward me. We are all coming toward God for this unity. Evidently, none of us have arrived theologically. None of us have arrived and know it all. You're not coming toward me and I'm not coming toward you. No one has flawless doctrine. No one has a monopoly on the truth. We're all growing and learning and moving toward the unity of the faith. And we're moving into a perfect man 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the goal of Christian growth. To be as fully like Jesus as we can possibly be. To grow up into that complete man. Into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children. And you know how children are. They're up and down. They're really moody. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And this describes today's church, sadly. People are like little kids. They get tossed about. They don't know what to believe because they've never been taught. They've never been equipped. Hey, when people aren't well grounded, you end up with a room full of live wires. The pastor gets what he deserves. Christians need to be consistent. And they need to be consistent. They need to be strong. When believers aren't taught the Bible, they don't know what to believe. And so they end up vulnerable to every smooth-sounding doctrine that blows through the church. I hope you understand. This is why we teach the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. When we point to chapter and verse then you can see what's true. You can hold on to what's true. You can believe it because it's backed up by the book. In contrast to teaching that's described, in contrast to true teaching, notice what the teaching here, it's described as trickery, as cunning craftiness, as deceitful plotting. That's what you don't want to buy into. Paul tells us in verse 15, here's how you recognize real true teaching. It's speaking the truth in love. It's speaking the truth in love. When you you hear someone who's speaking the truth in love, that's what enables us to grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ Jesus. When a person teaches the truth of God in the love of God, believers grow. and They become more like Jesus. Well, Paul mentions Christ who is the head of the church. He says, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What is Jesus doing in the world today? He's a bodybuilder. He is. He's building up his body, one believer at a time. You're one plank in the body. I'm one plank in the body of Christ in this house that he's building. We're one living stone in this temple to God. We all have a place. And everyone's growth is crucial. Verse 17 continues to tell us how to walk worthy. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Several years ago, I I read where a co-ed from Skidmore College did some research to decipher the language of walking. Her experiment showed that how a person walks is a reflection of their personality. A waddle, well, Amy's waddle means she's pregnant, but your waddle means that you're independent, you know, self-sufficient. That's what a waddle means. A drag that means you're frustrated. A stride, that, that indicates confidence. If you're always on your tiptoes, that's a sign of insecurity. And a shuffle, that means that you're lazy. But you can tell a lot about a person by how they walk. And Paul would agree with that. 
both unbelievers and believers have a distinctive way that they walk, that they carry themselves in this world. And Paul says that you don't want to walk the way the rest of the world walks. You want to walk in a unique, in a set-apart way, in a holy way. And Paul begins by describing how these pagans walk, what you need to avoid. In verse 17, they walk in the futility of their minds. In other words, they're empty-headed. They don't think through the consequences of their actions. Unbelievers fail to make wise choices. That's not how you want to walk. And here's why. Here's why they make dumb choices. Why they're empty-headed. Because having their understanding darkened, they're alienated from the life of God. You understand this. Without Christ, you got no light in your life. Without Christ, that turns off the lights in your life. That turns off God's light. If you don't know Jesus, you're in a spiritual blackout. There's nothing but darkness. And how do people get cut off from God? He tells us, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. In other words, you don't have to become ignorant. You're born ignorant of God and His truth. Only when you're born again does the light come on. He continues to speak of the person separated from God who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. A person who constantly resists God ends up deadening their own conscience. They grow numb toward truth and toward morality. Anything goes that satisfies themselves. And this makes for an awful life for this person. A hollow, dark, shallow, empty life. I I like how C.S. Lewis once described the world without Christ. He called it a land where it's winter all year long, but never Christmas. It's a dark, it's a lonely place. This This is a terrible life to live. God doesn't want you to live this kind of life like the Gentiles live. That's not how you should walk. Verse 20 says you should dress for success. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which goes corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, in today's fashion-conscious world, before you take up an activity, you first have to dress the part. If you were to take up running, you'd want to go out and buy yourself some lightweight shoes and a jacket and some of those spandex pants and a watch, a little iPod to wear. You'd have to dress for it. And likewise, if you're going to run the Christian race, you need to dress appropriately. And what does that involve? That involves stripping away selfish attitudes. And stop rehearsing those old thoughts. And ditch the sinful behaviors that you used to lean on as a crutch. You need to clean out the junk in your life that characterized your life before you came to Jesus. And you need to put on a new attitude. You need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You need new thoughts. A new way to think. You need to begin to harmonize how you live life with the Word of God. You need to learn to see yourself and all of life from God's perspective. 
You need to see yourself in Christ Jesus. You see, it's all about putting off and putting on. If you're going to live and walk as a Christian, you've got to dress for it. You've got to dress for success. And here's what this kind of life looks like. I mean, the next few verses list some examples of some practical changes that will take place in your life if you dress for the Christian walk. He says, therefore, putting away lying. I mean, you're going to stop lying. You're going to let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I mean, the Gentiles, how do they walk? Well, they're not honest. They're not truthful with themselves or with others. They live a lie. Christians should become truth tellers. We should become vigilant. Hey, we've been saved by the truth. We live according to the truth. What should we value in our own discourse with others? The truth. We need to become truth tellers. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, it's not always wrong to be angry. We talked about this this morning. I mean, there's a lot in this world that will rile your anger. But just don't let your anger lead you to sin. I read where the average person drives 20 miles per hour faster when they're angry. Anger is a powerful force. You should get control of it before it gets control of you. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That means keep short accounts. If you have a conflict with a friend or with a spouse... You need to deal with it before the day is done. Deal with it as quickly as possible. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And then verse 27, nor give place to the devil. In other words, don't give the devil an opportunity to tempt you. You know, often I, I hear people say, well, I got this terrible problem with pornography. Every time I log on to the internet, I stumble. Well, stop logging on to the internet. Well, I got this terrible problem. Every time I enter a bar, I get drunk. We'll stop going into the bar. I mean, if you don't give the devil an opportunity to tempt you, you won't get tempted. That's where it starts. Come on, man. That's a funny thing they say on ESPN. I mean, get serious. Don't be naive. Don't be stupid. If you're serious about walking with God, you'll stop walking headfirst into temptation. Don't give place to the devil. And then let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Here's the putting off. Here's the putting on. It's not just putting off, but it's putting on. I mean, the thief shouldn't just stop stealing but he should volunteer to give back to his community. It's not just a point of not taking from you, but it's what can I give to you. That, that's the total conversion that Christianity creates. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Again, it, it's not just not letting corrupt communication come out of your mouth. It's not just to stop cussing but it's to begin to speak life and grace to others. It's positive communication. You know, whenever I speak in another area of the country, it doesn't take long for my audience to identify me as a Southerner. And why? <laughs> well, I've got a Southern accent. 
And likewise, a Christian should be immediately identified by what comes out of his or her mouth. Again, it's not just the absence of a corrupt word, a gossip or profanity, but it's the constructive tone of God's grace. That's what should be indicative of you, your speech and of my speech. In other words, do your words build up or do they tear down? And then verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Quenching the Spirit avoids doing what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Whereas grieving the Spirit is just the opposite. It's you doing what God has told you not to do. And remember, grieving is a love word. You can't grieve someone who doesn't love you. The Holy Spirit loves you. And that's why when you do those things that He's told you not to do, you grieve Him. You break His heart. Let's not hinder or grieve the work of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Again, putting off the bad things. Putting off the old things. Putting on the new things. We need a new attitude. And notice the real kicker in this last verse. He says, Forgiving one another... Just as God in Christ forgave you. Now there would be no problem with that verse whatsoever if it stopped with forgiving one another. Paul doesn't stop there. He adds, just as God in Christ forgave you. Oh boy, that ups the ante. You mean I should forgive others as freely and fully as Jesus has forgiven me? That's exactly what it means. Two husbands were talking one day. One says to his buddy, he says, man, when my wife gets mad, she gets historical. He says, no, you mean hysterical. He answers, no, I mean historical. She starts dredging up the past. Hey, Jesus forgets what he forgives. He forgives and forgets. He holds no grudges. And that's how we need to forgive each other. Let's forgive each other just as Jesus has forgiven us.